On this episode of 20 Minute Takes, we talk with Jenny Yang. She's the Vice President of World Relief for Advocacy and Government Relations. Jenny walks us through some of the ways that she's seen Christian communities engage with immigrant communities and refugees. And she unpacks for us some of God's invitation in the midst of this unfolding story. Well, Jenny, thank you so much for joining us on 20 Minute Takes. It's so great to be with you, Nikki. Always fun to talk with friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the first question that I have to ask you is you travel around the world and around the country talking about immigrants and refugees. And you speak at conferences and are at meetings, and somehow you always manage to find the best food while everyone else is eating their box lunch. So I think this might be the most important question I ask you in this podcast. How do you figure out and find these food treasures? Uh, nearby the places where you are? Well, that is a, a mission I have whenever I travel is I actually travel to eat. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I am a, a Yelp elite member. And are so you really? Over 800 reviews and counting uh-huh. over like many, many years. And so, um, but I love to check out small businesses, fun restaurants, hole in the wall places, wherever I go. And I've had some amazing food. So if you're ever going to a city where you don't know where to eat, just follow me on Yelp or ask me, message me. <laughs> I'm like a food evangelist. I will tell you exactly where to go and exactly what to order. Um, but it's funny because I will always try to sneak out and, and get something good to eat. So, <laughs> I mean, I know I'm not the only one who's noticed this, but <laughs> Jenny Yang seems to know the best place. And it, it, it might be dirt cheap, It might, but it always has something local to the community or yeah. some dessert you've never found or something like that. Yes. And I actually, I write Yelp reviews, not so much for other people, but for myself so that Uh if I ever go back to city and I want good food, I'll remember all the things that I really loved and the places that were really good to eat at. So, uh, so it's, it's a hobby of mine, I would say, but I, I grew up, my mom always cooked really well growing up and my husband and I both really enjoy good food. And so we'll always try to eat good food wherever we are. And my sons, I feel like they're kind of a little like some foodies too, because they appreciate good food. <laughs> Mini so foodies. Fun doing that. Yes. <laughs> That's so great. Now, is that connected at all to the work that you do with vulnerable communities, with immigrants and refugees? Uh, I think, well, I feel like so much of food is a, a part of, of identifying with and demonstrating your culture. And I know like at least in the Korean culture that so much of our conversations and identity is tied to our food because when you actually look at Korean food, a lot of it is root-based vegetables, it's it's preserved. And a lot of that was because Koreans had to preserve their food during extreme times of extreme poverty and war. And so kimchi even, even though now it's on, on a lot of menus and a lot of, of restaurants, Back in the day, I mean, they they preserved cabbage because that was the way that they could eat their vegetables, right? And so it, it, I think so much of food is tied to culture. And so I think any community I go to, so much of the flavor for the local community, can you can ex- understand through food. And so I always think it's a fascinating experience. And there's a lot of cities with diverse communities where you can know that diversity through through the food. I love that. It's like what you can learn about. Korean culture. And I could just talk about yeah. food forever. So I'm so glad you're even asking me about food. This is my favorite topic to talk about. <laughs> Not ultimate favorite, but one of my top favorites. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. I think I, I, I too have appreciated kind of the entry into a culture through its mm-hmm. food, but also 
through like how it is that people socialize or connect like around a table mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Oh yeah, for sure. I know for a lot of folks, one of the things that's been happening recently is they have had more engagement with a- Afghan refugees in their communities. Mm-hmm. And I know that's been part of your story too. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things that you're discovering as you're welcoming your neighbor into your community? Yeah. Well, I think, um, for example, I live in Baltimore where there's a good uh, refugee community here. And years ago, I volunteered with an Iranian refugee family. And then after that, with a Syrian refugee family. And I just started volunteering locally, or I did a volunteer training, I should say, where they're trying to connect us to help set up an apartment for Afghans that are coming in. So just in Baltimore City, they have, we're slotted to receive around 400 Afghan refugees. And so the, the major need right now is around housing because a lot of them are living in temporary hotels because they actually have a large families many times. So it's hard to find two, three, four bedrooms just to have whole families actually stay together. So uh, I signed up to actually do an apartment setup. And so I'm hoping to do that in the new year. And uh, once the families probably get out of some of these hotel situations, they'll, it'll be easier to be able to interact with them and start trying to serve them in some way. And so we're helping to do like an apartment setup and, um, and things, but it's, it's really challenging because in the United States, we evacuated over a hundred thousand individuals, but then about 60 to 70,000 of them came to the United States. And so for, for many weeks, they were at these eight military bases across the country. And now over the next three or four months, they're all going to empty out of the bases and go into local communities. And so we're seeing in terms of numbers, uh, us receiving the same number that we received over the past four years that are now being resettled over the next three to four months. And so the impact on local communities is significant. And even in Baltimore, we do not have a lot of affordable housing. And so that's probably the biggest challenge is just finding housing for a lot of these individuals. And you have on top of that families who have experienced significant trauma and loss and, you know, family separation even. And so they're here, they're trying to find housing jobs while also dealing with the trauma of having been evacuated and also leaving their families behind. And so there's a lot of, I think, need in the community. But I would also say that the Afghan community that we've been working with have been tremendous leaders and in translating and in providing, you know, culturally appropriate clothes and even food. And so I think it's been great to see that community mobilizing, but I think there's continuing need, I think, for more community members and churches to really come in and fill the gap because there are going to be those needs in the next months, a few months to come. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, just the concentration of people coming Mm -hmm. in this short time. Yeah. Um, is there a particular thing that you think that churches or Christians in the community might be particularly helpful? Maybe something that they might not be thinking of or... Yeah. Well, it's it's funny because a lot of churches, because it was such a cultural touch point in our country, I mean, everyone knew and were pretty much agreeing that we had to do something to evacuate these vulnerable people. And so a lot of them are coming and... I actually, when I was traveling in November, I, I saw several Afghan families that were trying to navigate flights and were, some of them seemed like they were lost in the airport and didn't know which planes to get on. And just like being able to smile at them and, and try to help them out. Like it went a long ways. And I remember when I was leaving the airport, the mom like looked over and she just 
smiled at me. And up until that point, she just was like really stressed out because she had two young kids with her and they didn't know where their luggage was coming out. So they were waiting in front of the plane when it was coming out of like the baggage claim and they didn't know where to go for that. So, so I think just little things like that. And actually when we got there, there was an, an older couple that was volunteering and was, had made signs and we're going to really help walk with this family through that process. And so I really encourage any church um, or yourself individually or your family to sign up, just Google refugee resettlement agency in your city and uh, see if there are any agencies that you can partner with. And normally you you have to be trained as a volunteer and then they'll tell you which specific volunteer opportunities that they're looking for. And a lot of agencies even just need donations because for every refugee family, if you set up an apartment, you're required by the government to provide specific things and mattresses and, you know, silverware and like four plates, cups, you know, bowls, um, brand new sheets, clothing, like all of this stuff that is really basic for an apartment setup. We need to provide for every single family. So we've had Amazon wish lists, which with people just ordering stuff and just delivering it to our offices, which has been super helpful. And then um, I would just say just the ongoing relationship building. And in Baltimore, we don't right now have an opportunity to volunteer directly to with these families because they're in transitional housing. But eventually, um, and in many of Royal Relief's offices, you can have the opportunity to just volunteer. And whether that's picking up at the airport or helping some of these families fill out job applications or helping learn English, these are all needs that a lot of the Afghan families will have. And so, and I would say even for myself that volunteering with refugees in Baltimore City has really been not just me giving, but me receiving so much because I've had, again, the best food I've ever had, like cooked <laughs> for me by this Iranian family that I was I was becoming friends with, but also just this incredible experience of knowing what their culture was like and what their experiences were like and how some of many of them just love their country that they came from, but really could not stay there. And they love America, but they miss so many things about their homes that um, for many of us, it's hard to imagine, I think what that could be like. So, yeah. um, so it's, it's wonderful opportunities of mutuality to both give and receive. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, what are some of the misconceptions do you think, or, um, misunderstandings that Christians have when they are, uh, thinking about immigration or thinking about refugees? Yeah. Well, I would say, I think, when you actually look at U.S. history, you see that there's the ongoing concerns around refugees and displaced persons oftentimes is around national security and cultural um, concerns. And so a lot of folks will be really concerned that they weren't properly vetted when refugees are actually the most highly vetted individuals to come into the United States. They all have a face-to-face interview with the Department of Homeland Security officer and then have to go through all the biometric screenings and everything that you would anticipate an individual needing to go through to safely come to the U.S. I think another misconception is just, um, I know when a lot of Syrian refugees were coming into the U.S. five, six years ago, there was a huge concern that they were Muslim and there was a huge backlash that they were going to implement Sharia law and things like that. And it really is unfounded. And I think for, for a lot of Americans who believe in religious freedom, the opportunity for even Muslim people to worship freely in this country and safety and security shouldn't be exclusive to just Christians. And so I, I found that fear of 
Sharia law and of Muslims to be a little bit out of um, concerning to me. And so that was another concern that I think a lot of people had around specifically Muslim refugees that were coming in. And then I think, you know, a lot of people just have cultural concerns that you have people who look different than you, eat different foods than you, speak a different language, and a fear that that's going to mean that you're displaced or that you're uncomfortable in your own communities. And again, a lot of that fear is unfounded because when you look at our history, there's been always backlashes against the newcomers, right? So whether it was the Germans or the Irish or the Italians or the Chinese, it just continued in waves. And now the iteration is maybe um, immigrants from Latin America or from Middle Eastern countries. But we have to recognize that history to remember that we as humans have not changed in how we treat oftentimes people that are different than us. But it doesn't mean that the motives for why they're coming is any different. And many of them are still coming to pursue what our ancestors and our families themselves pursued, albeit it's in a completely different system in a way now. Yeah. So it's just kind of, it's always been the reaction that folks who are here have to whoever the latest newcomer is. Yes. No, that's that's definitely right. And so and I, I really do think for a lot of people who do get to know refugees and immigrants on an individual basis, like we don't assume the worst thing about that person. You get to know them and you like probably like them. You you learn from them. You appreciate that relationship. And so I think a lot of times it really opens the door for people to not making assumptions about whole groups of people or perpetuating stereotypes, which are very harmful. And so all of that, I think, is very important. But it is rooted in proximity and in relationships with with people as well. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Um, how is it that your Christian faith informs or fuels your engagement with immigrants and with refugees? Well, I think my faith is the foundation from which I operate in this world on any issue, including on immigration. And what was interesting to me is I grew up in an immigrant home. I, I'm the daughter of immigrants. But immigration was never a policy issue to me until I started working at World Relief. And I started realizing that some of the most vitriolic people against immigrants were like white evangelical Christians. Wow. I was like, why is that the case? And it was borne out in research and surveys that found white evangelicals more than any other group, whether they're Hispanic Protestants, Black Protestants, white Catholics, or non-religiously affiliated were the most anti-immigrant. Um, or the most likely to think that immigrants were a burden. And the reason I found that thinking problematic is because I know my family, I know tons of immigrants, and there's no way that we're a burden, quote unquote, on this country. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we embody American values. We're entrepreneurial and family oriented and hardworking. And so I think that really rubbed me the wrong way, um, kind of knowing that that was the common Christian response. And so when I went back to the Bible and I started reading through Genesis, through Revelation, I just realized through a whole new lens that the whole story of scripture is ultimately a story about migration, that Abraham was the first person who was called by God to leave his homeland and to go to another, another land that God would show him. And he didn't know where he was going, but the fact that he moved was a testament to God's faithfulness in his life. God proved himself to be faithful through Abraham's migration story. The same with Joseph, who was victim of human trafficking, and he was sold into slavery, and God rescuing him was a testament to God's faithfulness in his life. And even Ruth, who was a Moabite woman, a migrant worker, 
who was so good at her job cleaning the produce in the fields that that's when Boaz noticed her. And even Jesus himself, who was a Middle Eastern refugee, and often like to say that we are followers of a brown-skinned Middle Eastern refugee, and people don't connect the Christmas story to migration and persecution, but that was central to the Christmas story because right after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had to flee into Egypt in order to save his life. And so there's so many connections in scripture to migration. And in fact, what you see when you see these connections is that migration is fundamentally a spiritual and a theological issue. I actually think that God uses the movement of people to accomplish his mission on purposes in life. And so when there's communities of people who have never heard about Jesus moving and being scattered to Christian heavy communities, this is an opportunity for us to share the gospel. Or if there's persecuted believers who cannot worship freely in their home countries and are migrating to communities and other countries where they can worship freely. We have an opportunity to receive them and to learn from them about and to be shaped in our discipleship by other believers who are persecuted. And so it's not just an opportunity to share the gospel, but to receive the gospel as well. And that can really only happen through migration. And so I don't, I think, you know, it's beyond just a political issue or, or a policy issue. It really is a biblical issue. And I think the more that Christians can have that foundation from which to think about a very complicated issue, I think the better off we'll be both in our narrative and also in our relationship building as well. Wow, that's so compelling. I've never thought about migration being sort of the vehicle through which God has intended to mm. reveal his story and, mm. and to reach his people. That's amazing. Yeah. It's all over the Bible. I mean, even like as you think about the New Testament and how the gospel spread, it was through persecution and migration. Like that's the only reason it was able to move through people, right? And so there's a lot there, but definitely there's um there's a, a rich richness to that narrative in scripture. Well, even as you like hop, skipped and jump through some of those stories of uh, and these different characters, you can see like the direct parallels with the different folks who are facing the same dynamic, all right? Mm-hmm. Or, or they're on the move for similar sort of reasons. So I, yeah. I appreciate the way that that even our current day makes scripture alive in like a right. new way. No, sure. That's amazing. <laughs> Do you have a sense as to what is the long-term dream that you dream of with regard to immigration or immigrant communities or refugees here in this country or beyond? Well, I think, I mean, I feel like there's definitely a need for Christians to um, engage in ministry and like continue to build relationships with immigrant families and like newly arriving immigrants. Um, But I, I do hope that our communities will shift from just doing direct service work to advocacy and see the need for systemic and structural changes in our laws and systems because yes, we can help one person and then another person, but if they're all caught up in a bad system, we need to change the system. Mm-hmm. And right now we have millions of people that are living in our country undocumented. We have dreamers who are young people who came to this country not knowing they were here illegally, who are caught up in a system in which oftentimes they can't go to college or are, are in fear of being deported. And so our laws need to change and our laws need to recognize the fact that many of these people want to get right with the law, but don't have the opportunity to do that. The fact that many of these families have been here for over a decade and have really planted roots in this country. The majority of undocumented immigrants have been here for longer than 10 years. And so but my hope and my dream is that we will eventually get to this place where we put so much pressure on Congress 
that they can actually have the political courage to pass some kind of immigration reform. And this has been a goal from Democratic and Republican administrations, and it just hasn't happened. And so I think getting that systemic change and that relief legally for a lot of people in this country will go a long ways to remedying the fear that people live with on a day-to-day basis and really giving us the hope that we have to really integrate immigrants into our communities um, a lot better than I think uh, we have been. I mean, as I hear you talking, what I hear you saying is this is policy, but the policy means that people won't live in fear anymore, mm-hmm. right? That people have this freedom to sort of live out their life mm-hmm. with these protections. Mm-hmm. And and you talk about how f- folks have been working on this for a while. I know you've been at that table and and having these conversations for a long time. So I do hope that folks will hear this and will receive that as an invitation for the Christian church to jump in with more enthusiasm and force uh, as we try to be hospitable and and to welcome those that God has brought into our communities. Jenny Yang with World Relief, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us on 20 Minute Takes. Uh, We're grateful for the work that you're doing and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Yeah, thanks, Nikki, so much. It was great talking with you. Twenty Minute Takes is a production of Christians for Social Action. Our music was created by Andre Henry, and our show is produced by David Delion. I'm your host, Nikki Toyamasito, and if you want to find out more about our work, visit the website at ChristiansforSocialAction.org. Thank you.